No, have I shown you this picture of a donkey that my friend sent me in the mail? Is it their donkey? It's my donkey. Oh. Wait, you have a donkey? Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we usually talk to poets over a drink we prepared especially for them. I'm Duji Tahat. I'm Luther's almost cancer season Hughes. And I'm Gabrielle Bates. <laughs> this week we're talking with Justin Philip Reed about music, movies, and malevolency. Our signature drink for this episode is straight whiskey out of the bottle. Justin Philip Reed is an American poet, essayist, and amateur bass guitarist. His preoccupations include horror cinema, poetic form, morphological transgressions, Ooh. and uses of the grotesque. <laughs> he is the author of two poetry books, Indecency, which won the National Book Award in 2018, and a brand new collection, The Malevolent Volume, both of which were published by Coffee House Press. He was born and raised in South Carolina and enjoys smelling like outside. But before we go chat with Justin, we've got several questions from listeners to attend to. The first one is directed specifically at you, Luther, <laughs> but I think we should all have to answer it after you do. Capital P Perplexed says, Luther, you sometimes talk about capital P poets or capital P poetry. What does that mean? You know, uh, capital P perplexed. Um, I can't really put it in a straightforward, uh, you know, thing. But I will say, I think of a capital P poet um, as someone who, um, we think about icons, right? We think about people like, you know, the Michael Jackson, the Whitney Houston, the Beyonce. They are, they are, you know, they are, they are the icons of, you know, of music, right? Same way, capital P poets are, you know, the icons of poetry and or does the work of a poet. So like Gwendolyn Brooks, the capital P poet. Carl Phillips, the capital P poet. Arya Aber, capital P poet. I mean, people are like, they are, we were talking about like poetry and how they, people who are, you know, reckoning with quote unquote the canon and making it new and doing that work, they're the capital P poets. And the capital P poem or capital P poetry is the same 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 lines, right? Uh, um, Lucy Clifton will celebrate me is a capital P poem, right? Like it does the iconic work of a poem. When you think of poetry, that poem is that poem is a poem. Um, so yeah, you know, capital P perplexed. That's if you have to ask if you're a capital P poet, you're probably not. That's fair. That seems like a, that's a good bar. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not ready for that. I'm not. I also don't want to, I also don't want to be a capital P public. I don't want to, mm. I don't want to say like one day I'm going to be this thing. For like, sure. That's where I'm a shit. Get out the way. <laughs> I love that idea of like the distinction between, or, or the, the coupling of like, 
the art and like the world or like the community and the idea like taking on the mantle of like speaking as a poet in poems and like out in the world um i think that's really interesting i feel like when i hear the phrase capital p poet or poem i think of like the canon like canonized mm -hmm. poets and poems i also think of a sort of like self-importance like um like a poet or a poem that is taking poetry very seriously um like when, when i hear that phrase um but i but i like your your version better i think yeah what do you think Deji? uh well since the question was directed at you i'm gonna steal from you i think before <laughs> i think before we were recording literally before we were recording you said uh it has to mean something to someone somewhere um and i like that as a definition i've thought a lot about the question of what capital p poetry means i don't know about poet i don't know that i have an answer for that one but i think especially capital p poetry as it's been used to like um dismiss and diminish like spoken word for example and like mm -hmm. sort of other I don't know, forms, quote unquote, of, um, and yeah, I like that definition. <laughs> I like that it has to mean something to someone somewhere, um, as like the sort of first step. Um, and then also like at the same time, like taking seriously, I think the responsibility and taking seriously, like what you're saying really matters too. And I think like, if you're ready to take that mantle and sort of step into that, um, role, it like sort of by necessity forces you into relationship um with others and like community with one another. like like you are officially claiming your spot in the choir um mm -hmm. as it were and like the choir of poets and then like the choir of just like people sort of talking about like the kind of world that we live in and that we want to live in that's my answer <laughs> perplexed <laughs> and that is it <laughs> Love the question. Um, and we have a second question. Are y'all up for a second one? Of course. Naturally. Okay, great. Um, so our second listener question for this week is, I always want to know what rituals and rhythms other writers have around reading. Do you read poems at a certain time of day? Do you light a candle? Do you read whole books in one sitting? Do you ever feel like you should read poems even when you don't feel like it? <laughs> Nodding is happening. Yes, yes. Um, man, you know, I've never thought about lighting a candle before reading, but I kind of love that idea. So like, it's crappy. Uh, yeah, like I, I do love it. My favorite way of reading a poem is all in one sitting and out loud, or a book, uh, all in one sitting and out loud. The whole um, book out loud in one day? Yeah, if I've got like an hour, yeah, if I'm like reading for a couple hours by myself, I would love to do that. That's my favorite way to do it. I don't know that I, I very rarely get to, especially since lately I've been reading a lot of collected and selected, which are just, you know, too long to do that with. Um, and with that, I actually find myself more and more feeling like I should read poems even when I don't feel like it. I think like there's a certain like, <sighs> um you know part of the like alchemy and magic of poems is like you just show up right <laughs> like you have to sort of be willing to show up and read the line and like you know some some of the really great poems certainly capital p poems like 
even when you're not ready for it, will like come for you um, mm. and let you know <laughs> that, that this is the shit right here. And the fact that you like showed up, sort of showed up at all, like gets rewarded in this like really beautiful way. Um, that doesn't always happen, but certainly that's the hope. That's interesting. Yeah, I also, in grad school, I tasked myself, or the last year of grad school, of reading every book out loud as well. Um, every poetry book out loud, uh, for poems for workshop. And I just feel like doing that, for me, offered a certain, uh, a different level of understanding of the work I was reading. I was like, I had to be really into what's going on. And if I read it out loud and didn't understand what's happening, I had to reread it again, because I was like, wait, I said it out loud, it didn't make sense to me, let me reread this. And so I, for sure, um, I agree with that sentiment. Um, now, though, I don't have a uh, a disciplinary reading rhythm. Um, like I wish I did in grad school. And I think it's because I left, you know, I, got, I graduated with film school and I was like, ah, I can like, you know, lessen my, <laughs> lessen my intake on reading books and reading in general. Um, so now I don't have a, schedule for reading um and i still wish i did but um as far as reading when i do read i don't feel like i have to read everything in one sitting actually i pride myself on taking time with books um i make sure that i read a book uh at least one a week and i take the entire week to read a book just to allow myself the breath and the breather and it's not i mean it, it is a it is a study but I allow myself to do the studying and to relax and do that work and really engage with it and think about it over the week versus thinking I have to read a book in one sitting. Um, because I love grad school. So when I was in grad school, it was like, it was like book, book, book here, book there, book there. You read this shit, you know, I read it. But it was like constantly reading because I, I was in that setting of having to be uh, a student of poetry. I still, I'm still a student of poetry, but I'm uh, my own teacher now. It's not like I'm reading for the sake of conversing with other people in the classroom. I'm reading to think about and sit with and listen to um, and take that in with other things, with you know, with the world around me, with what I'm watching on TV, with other books I'm reading. I'm taking in everything at one time versus having to study it and immediately regurgitate it the next morning. Yeah, I don't know, what are you thinking, uh, Gabby? Uh... One of my favorite things about mini poetry books is that I can read them in one sitting. I think, I mean, it's not for every book and it's certainly not how I like set out to read every book. But when I think of my favorite poetry reading experiences, it usually involves like getting the new collection, treating it very romantically. Like I like to take my books on dates. Um, which like in pre-pandemic time might mean like take like actually taking yeah. it somewhere. Um, you literally like go to dinner with a book, right? Yes, yeah. I, will, I will go to dinner with a book. Like we will have a drink, we will have an appetizer. I love this. This is definitely uh, a ritual. Like that is 100% counts, yeah. And I just, I love it so much because like often like a poetry book for me is about like, inhabiting this other person's mind and soul and, and like getting to know them, like really getting to know them. And it, and it does feel romantic to me. I love that about it. And um, 
and and like the whole the whole experience of it like each poem being its own world and then all of those worlds together like i, I just i love to just bathe in it just to be all in it um but i'm always you know marking the poems that i will then come back to on my second read and that's when i personally do the like more of the studying and and like the reading out loud my voice does not have the stamina to read a whole book out loud i, I envy that both of you like have that capacity like my throat would just like die um, <laughs> but um and so, and so that takes it to like a whole nother layer of intimacy with those mm -hmm. those pawns that for whatever mysterious reason like call me to to interact with them in that way yeah. um lately like since I like can't go on like book dates necessarily um I've had a few mornings where like first thing in the morning I like didn't look at my phone I took a book I took my coffee and I sat outside um like rain or shine cold or heat and I would read like half of a book um like just to start the day and and that was really important for me um especially like a few weeks ago I just really needed that sort of mental break um but but yeah i guess yeah my reading rituals are romantic <laughs> what, are, what are some books y'all both uh you mentioned rereading a book and then like that, that that'll be the study of it um mm -hmm. what are some books that both of y'all like read like reread consistently or annually rsl scare my the black maria yeah uh, I think Salman Sharif's look, I've like reread pretty much every year since I read it. Um, and I can feel myself, uh, um, like I just read uh, Diving Into the Wreck by Adrian Rich and I'm definitely, like that's definitely a book that <laughs> I'm like, every couple weeks, I think about it every other day <laughs> for the last like six months, so yeah. I love it, I love it. Um, I read, I reread two books annually. One is The Rest of Love by Carl Phillips, um, which is the book I actually take with me every time I travel. That book is on like, in my backpack every time I travel. Um, and then I also reread Stagsley by Sharon Oh my God, yes, of course. Like, I can't year. believe I, I forgot yeah, that, I yes, yes. Year. I just cannot yes. not read it. It's like, it's like it's... all my books I don't read Stagsley. It's like, yes. ah, I read <laughs> That book is so perfect. <laughs> there, there's so many lessons I cannot, I cannot uh, not read that book and not learn something new. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of yep. new things uh, when you're reading a book, let's get over to Justin Phillips' conversation. Cool. Well, um, let's jump in. Uh, I would um, love to start, Justin, maybe with like sort of your origin story. I'm wondering, do you remember the first poem you read? Uh, and um, the first poem you read where you specifically thought that like, that's what I want to do. I want to write poems. Um, hmm. There was a huge gap between the first poem I read, which was probably in church, um, and the first poem that made me want to be a poet. I honestly could not tell you which which poem made me want to be a poet. <laughs> uh, 
I'm thinking it probably had to happen sometime between intro to creative writing and intermediate. Uh, I will tell anyone who knows me even the slightest bit that I think the first time that I read Carl Phillips's Lita after the swan, um, I knew then that I wanted to study Carl Phillips. Um, that has been a huge determiner for everything that's happened since then. Um, but before that, honestly, it could have been a Theodore Redkip poem, and then I would be pretty surprised <laughs> that I continue <laughs> to be a poet. Um, I think I had a lot of encouragement, though, from other um, friends who were studying creative writing, because at that point, I was still attempting to be a journalist, and um, I had written, um, I think, a villanelle um, in intro to creative writing, and it was actually a like kind of problematic villanelle that I honestly don't really... <laughs> I would never want to show that to anybody now, but if there's ever a juvenilia edition about my, of my work that comes out, put it in there. I mean, I want people to know that I like had um, a poem in which I, you know, said some things I didn't, I wouldn't mean now. Um, but yeah, I received some good feedback. Um, at least about my impulses there and that kind of, propelled me into getting deeper into um I think specifically poetic form and then I was like okay maybe I'll try poetry um I mean it in there it sounds like you were you entered writing maybe through journalism I could you talk maybe a little bit about that and then like yeah I mean it sounds like you were obviously like writing prose and maybe your relationship to essay before jumping into poetry and how that maybe informed that leap it's messy. Um, the The journey was messy. So I could, when you said origin story, I didn't know where to enter it. Um, like I, I mentioned, you know, my upbringing in church in which, you know, the, the Psalms were always kind of a, a poetic education. Um, but I also have to make room for the time when I was a dropout um, in which I wrote um, lyrics to hardcore songs that were also raps and blues. And um, those are probably my earliest poems because um, some of them didn't even have like musical accompaniment, um, though there was probably musical accompaniment in my head. Um, I recognize reading them now that I was doing the craft of poetry um, in writing those songs. And that was before I went back to school to even study writing. Um, the the journalism thing was <laughs> was interesting in that I kind of took it up um, my freshman year because I wanted to at that time be a features editor for Out Magazine. I was going through some things. I had a subscription to Out for years, um, which really annoyed my mother because they would always go to her address. So I would come home and have to dig my copies of Out out of the couch, which is where she kept them. Um, 
And anyway, I wanted to be a features editor for Out. And so I ended up becoming a features editor for my school newspaper. And it was essentially an excuse for me to be really shady and copy. Um, and I was good at it. Um, and that was before I dropped out um, or transferred and then dropped out. I will tell you all that story another time is kind of long. <laughs> Um, but does that kind of answer that question? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Okay. I mean, I, I'm, I guess I'm also curious, like, so much of your poetry stark, uh, strikes me as, like, essayistic in some ways. Like, they're sort of invested in making an argument. Um, that's sort of how it feels like. And I guess I'm wondering if you sort of view all writing that way or if you, like, approach poetry with that in mind because of the prose writing prior to it, or just, I don't know, if you have some thoughts around that. Mm, not at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> Word. Excellent. Great. I think I don't, for myself, I don't read poetry that leans into making arguments. Um, and I think when it happens in my own work, it kind of happens, happens stance. I, it's not something I commit to at the outset of a poem. Yeah. Um, and I think I would want to move in the direction of making that less the case, you know? Um, I think it's an impulse of my particular, dare I say, youth um, to want to make arguments mm -hmm. in the space of poetry. Um, but I've been growing further, I think, into a kind of um, ambivalence, a kind of negative capability, a kind of um, wish to dwell in deep uh, personal conflict um, and not know what arguments to make, um, to not really attempt to force an argument so if i'm gonna i don't know i'm taking a break from poetry but i uh i think in in the essay work that i'm doing i want to be a better observer than um someone who arranges values in a system i love that you mentioned music. Uh, how long have you been playing the bass guitar? Since I was 13, I think. Um, before that, I played um, an acoustic guitar. It was one of like the cheap um, early Ibanezes that you can get. And what happened was, it, it's all to do with a boy. Um, I went to this astronomy camp, I think in the seventh grade. Um, and fell like madly in love with this kid. Essentially, we were kids. Um, and he played acoustic guitar. He taught me the chords to Smells Like Teen Spirit, um, Come As You Are, and I think Seven Nation Army. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I took out, I was really into corn at the time. Um, and so I think because of the 
specificity, like the specific sound of um, Fieldy, who is Korn's bass player, um, I decided that bass was the direction I wanted to go into because I wanted to make that sound, um, which I never really accomplished. I don't know what his EQ levels are, but <laughs> it's it's kind of the same you know, trajectory with the Carl Phillips. Like I can never write a Carl Phillips poem, <laughs> though I tried many times, um, it ended up making something else. Um, and I think with, you know, bass guitar, I've just um, been on and off trying to um, maintain a relationship with the instrument, number one, but also to explore the different, um, ways that that instrument is available like I, I think about um sounds that we don't expect a bass to be able to make um those are things that within the last year used to make me wake up and be excited um, about the day um right now it's really hard um you know being trapped inside with everyone and having to be very mindful about the sounds that I'm making um, to be divorced from my usual practice of um, exploring the instrument. Um, but I am going to find a way around these circumstances. Um, thank you for asking. Yeah, I, I mean, I've always admired your written work on the page for how like syntax and the line score kind of music. And when I, I found out you actually were a musician, it just made so much sense to me. Um, just your, just how you understand music in that way, which I'm sure is different. I don't know how you would describe the difference between the musicality of something like a bass versus the musicality of something like the English language and poetry, or if you feel like you're working in totally different mediums when you're engaging with those two things, or if there are ways that they inform each other for you? Um, one way I've thought about it within the last day or so actually is um, because of the poem that I sent y'all um, from Reginald Shepard, I've been thinking about um, something else that Regina Shepard wrote um, that is used as his intro in the anthology Angles of Ascent. So Reginald Shepard, and this is from an interview that was actually in the um, Callaloo Journal, um, wrote, I have an ambivalent relationship to literary tradition, to the canonical literary language. Every writer is alienated from his own language. Language belongs to no one. And writing is always about trying to find or construct a place for yourself in this system based on negation. Um, so Shira points out that language is based on negation, on bat not being cat and b not being p. Between its elements, he wrote, is only difference. And Lacan points out that the psyche itself is built on negation, on the self being always other and always unattainable, a kind of asymptote toward which one strives. That's what identity is, the attempt toward identity. Um, and he says more, but I've been thinking about um, the space that I think poetry for me happens in um, is not 
it's both a you know a, a huge universe and also a very small portion of the psyche um and so i have to continue to mine the same space and like i feel that the poem itself um then becomes just this gesture of difference between um the experience of mining that same place um and i think about when i just like play my bass um just to kind of remove myself from the everyday um i think i'm also trying to do the same thing with this same instrument with its same four strings and its same um finite notes um and make something new out of using a combination of those like very finite materials um though one thing i needed um a realization that I came to and needed last year, I believe, um, when I was still living in St. Louis, was that I bring a lot from, or attempt to bring a lot from um, space that is not um, conscious um, to the poem. Um, and I think when I realized I could do that with music, um, it really threw me. Um, I had a dream in which there was actual music, and so I got up to recreate the music on the bass. Um, and I knew that I couldn't do it. Um, in the same way that when I write a poem, I know that I'm trying to transcribe and transform an experience that I know I can't. But the, the pursuit is the thing of it. The pursuit is why I keep coming back to poetry because it feels so damn orgasmic when I actually bring about something. Um, though it isn't that thing, um, feels close enough um, until it's not and then I need to do it again. Um, but I feel like that is how we keep generating music um, because it feels good, the song, um, to hear it or to create it. But then like we have so much music because like the one thing is like not enough. Um, and I think that's how we generate language as um, Shepard was saying. Um, so shifting gears a bit to your actual work. Um, so your poems are always very muscular I'm in a sense that the lines are pleasantly exhaustive. Um, I'm propelled forward in a way that is thrilling. And it's almost like being in a thriller, like I'm always on my toes and my heart is never settled. I'm always like, what's happening next? What's happening next? Where should I go? Where should I go? And so I find myself wanting to read your work aloud a lot. So my question is, can you talk about the relationship between the line and of course you, um, and then what it means to be both, to, to have line integrity and also to exhaust the line? Hmm. Um, I'm gonna do my best. Uh, <laughs> I muscular is always an interesting term. Um, <laughs> when I think about uh, just muscles and um, sexual appeal and what we expect muscles to do, I don't think of my poetry as that. <laughs> um, as far as the line. I am I am very much into the opportunity that a line break is. Um, I am very much into the seduction that goes into the structure of a poem. 
Um, and so I know then that the, the line break is a part of that seductive action, um, that wanting to both keep you um, interested, essentially, um, but to also give you a little bit more and more of what you want <laughs> so that you'll stay. Um, and, it, and it's kind of like, at its best, it's like walking a tightrope, um, which actually I don't know if I should use that simile because I never walked a tightrope. Um, maybe I would say it's like when I go to walk in the woods nearby, that's also a cruising spot. Um, and I'm trying to both leave myself like open to like opportunities to simultaneously be alone and catch people in the act but also like not be seen mm. um and so like negotiating all of those i think is, is maybe similar to like crafting the line break um and sometimes like a lot of times i feel like my line break is really loud which might be like stepping on a twig and like getting noticed um but sometimes i need it to be that um and one thing that i'm i think is very clear in my work is that i'm very invested in um ambivalence at the line break this no that's kind of a double entendre um but i don't i don't know about the exhaustion of the line um like is this a question of asking myself how much I can cram into the line. Yes. It is. Yes. Uh, and also like, how do you, how do you uh, reckon with like the question of, is this too much for the line? Like, or is it just enough for the line? I guess that's any, anybody, but your work in particular, the way you, uh, <laughs> the way you style your syntax, it's, it's an exhaustion, right? And so I'm wondering, have you thought about what that looks like and what that means? Um, and how it's done successfully, if you feel like you've been doing it successfully. I think you have, mm. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think in this book, I intended to be in that mode of crafting um, a line that was full and maybe overflowing. Um, I think in indecency, my structural thought about exhaustion was more so for the entire book. I wanted the book to be exhausting to read. Um, with the malevolent volume, I wanted it to feel voluminous. I wanted it to feel um, like there was a density, um, especially when it came to darkness, um, and that I was also calling out to and critiquing or criticizing a tradition um, of poetry that may, this maybe pertains to the Baroque, I'm not sure, um, that takes on a kind of um, lexical fullness um, and often in the case of, of pastorals, um, while at the same time being in my mind like empty of particular concerns that I would want them to include. 
Um, so I was trying to like maybe make a parody of that. Um, and so bringing this, this, um, what would maybe be like, uh, pith, not pith. What, what am I saying? Uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe pithy, <laughs> pithiness, um, to the page while at the same time, um, bringing also the heaviness of <laughs> the existences that I think about and experience. Um, and I think that probably made the lines even heavier than they would have been, um, or at least more exhausting. Um, the, po the poems for me are still, because the book is, kind of new, um, still revealing itself to me as an experiment, <laughs> mm. you know? Um, so the, the ways that I see that experiment as successful or not is changing. Mm. The um, analogy you made about trying to catch people in the act while not being seen um, reminded me, like I feel so much in reading this book like the topics and the words themselves feel very heady but i feel particularly as a reader embodied in like reading them and to sort of luther's point like i feel really compelled to read the poems out loud and when i do i feel like my whole body like really in it and so like this tension of the speaker being in their head while me being in my body is a is something that like i'm really intrigued by and curious um about and i guess i'm curious for you in sort of writing the poem like how you feel about engaging sort of the reader's body like is that something you sort of set out to do or is that maybe by happenstance in the same way that like your impulse in the cruising spot is to do that like <laughs> does it just sort of happen in the poems that way hmm. um I think part of it is circumstantial, but the part that is not circumstantial is that these poems live, still do, in, in my body, um, more so than I, than I kept the poems from the previous book in my body. Um, I was able to recite these poems aloud um, without thinking about it, um, without trying, um, because, it, I think they had lived in me, or uh, that sounds romantic to say, um, but that the body was more involved in creating them. Um, mm. I was in a very consistent practice of getting outside of my usual indoor spaces um, and feeling, um, my body's like sensual transactions with the outdoors um like being up against the different textures of um i don't know like grass gravel um trees um smelling different sensations like listening to um the, the different ways that air passes through um different leaves or the ways that uh people um transact with um what we consider natural life um and of course, like the different um, wildlife um, and wildlife that is also city life. Um, because I think we also like, tend to forget that, you know, the birds we see in cities are 
city life. Um, and the trees also. Uh, but I, I wanted to kind of humble my own um, flesh um, in the context of these other lives. Mm. Um, and I think that actually opened up my relationship to my body um, mm. while I was, yeah, doing that. Um, and these poems came out of that practice. Um, and I, yeah, I don't know. I say practice like it's a complex thing. It was literally me like putting on <laughs> shorts and sneakers and walking like the two miles to Tower Grove Park uh, to just like be outside and like not think too much and not like argue too much. Um, and to like appreciate these things that were sustaining so much more life than I do um, and understand myself as part of like all of its cycles. Um, and I think from that came these poems that when I read them, I shake because they are like from my flesh. Mm -hmm. There is something in this new book, in the poems and speaking them aloud that feels like almost akin to like a possession of sorts. Like, I think because they are so embodied and so many of them are in this first person that there's with the horror, which like we'll talk about in a minute, we'll talk about horror in a minute, but um, there, there's something that feels almost like being possessed reading this book aloud in like a really interesting way to me. Dope. Okay. I, all right. I'm glad that I pulled that off. <laughs> <laughs> um, me too. <laughs> Every cell in this country looks like a choice you can walk in and out of. Does a man with no intentions know he means you only harm? If lodged in the scar were a pearl of such precise damage, no tongue could lift it. Either I am talking about my ex-lover or I am talking about the president. Every choice in this cell looks like a country he can walk in and out of. Here was a kind of kingdom. If I call him king, then he is. If he is late, it is the waste kingdom. If a king, there's elsewhere a slave and two, a mule. The grass can't grow quickly enough into the mouth of. Beneath this same pulled tooth moon, I drop my body like an axe head into a bed of blue-lipped weeds the king's highway rides its joys through. A crisis at my navel lifts the century out of turn. In the buzz of his country's decay, I give a form to the chaos. He loves to say he hates me, meaning his need to use me confuses him. I want to say I love me in the language of a place where it is possible. This is a stark mood with few conditions. The kingdom wears a skirt of woods, busy insects to signify health, a flag crested with, and fuck that motherfucker. Yes, that should have been its whole name. Yes, I am delectable, and therefore a spiral of buzzards descends in helix, or a whole horde of countrymen perfects the custom of puzzling my flesh. 
He licks the femur of a thing that many hands ago was me. He says, if you want to be enough, be both. He is talking about my bullet casket carcass, or he is talking about how fuckable I looked laid roadside in red. If he is late, it is the waste kingdom. Yeah. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I love that poem. It reminds me of two things, and this is like not on our question list of questions, so I'm going to be real. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm really curious about these two things. Like, there's a certain like sense of humor. Like, it's not ha-ha, laugh-out-loud funny type of humor, but there's like a certain willing to like deflate the self-important seriousness that, that you know certain poems do that you're that you, this book is interested in doing and this poem particularly does and i'm wondering if you could speak about that and then i'm also curious if you could talk about epithets because like this this poem has a lot of them and i know i clocked it like sort of throughout the book um and like sort of why and how okay that's um, why and how yeah <laughs> Um, the the humor part is kind of funny because right before uh, this recording, I was on the phone with um, Francine J. Harris, and um, we were talking about her new book, and I was saying a similar thing to her. Well, I said, it's clear that you were having fun, um, but I had to like then come back and qualify, you know, not fun, the way you said not funny, ha ha. <laughs> yeah. um, but like, what I understand about Francine that is fun and that like is um, like central to who she is. Um, and what she came back with was, yeah, I guess I'm, what she say, crotchety, but intrinsically happy. Um, and I was like, yeah, <laughs> that sounds right. <laughs> um, I don't think that's the case um, for me because I don't know if I'm intrinsically happy. Um, but I do know that play was a central uh, motivator for me um, in this. Um, because essentially, at the end of the day, in writing these poems, I wanted to talk my shit. And you need to have play in order to talk your shit. Um, like, what do we say? Like shade came after reading, you know, reading came first. And like, in order to read, like, you gotta be able to play, you need to be able to stretch. Mm. Um, and humor, <laughs> it feel, what it feels more like to me instead of humor is, um, a neck roll. Mm. Like when I'm when I'm cussing you out, like I need to be like, and you ain't shit. Like I have to be able to smile a little bit um, yeah. in order to like keep pushing myself through the rest of dragging you. Mm. Um, and since I needed to drag pretty much an entire like I don't know literary cultural monolith in this book, um, I had to roll my neck a lot. So that's probably what feels like humor. Mm. Um, that, and if, if we're following up the discussion about weight, um, 
and density with those two compacted like if i don't have some fun i don't know if i'd be able to pull this off um i, I mean there were many times that writing like indecency almost i don't know just really took me out and i wasn't interested in having that same experience um okay then what was the second part of this question <laughs> epithets <laughs> yeah um could you say more about this yeah well i guess um and maybe i'm using the term wrong i don't know but um just like the sort of creation of new words by hyphenating epithets. oh okay um I just like clocked several instances of them throughout the book and this poem in particular has many and I guess isn't I just an, isn't an epithet like Peter the Great like the oh, great is like an that would epithet make sense. right sure yeah then I'm probably using the term wrong then I'm just curious about hyphenated words <laughs> new words <laughs> uh, <laughs> neologisms there it is um yes I I noticed myself doing that as well. <laughs> um, I think it's a cheat for me in that I have a constant anxiety um, that I am not very smart and that I don't know many words. And so the way that I get around that feeling is to just make new ones. It feels very much like um, Luther, you know what I'm talking about when Fantasia came on and got to be real. It's just, you can't be wrong if you make up your own words. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's just like how I, um, I think ended up here. I was probably also reading um, some other writers who I can't name just at this moment who are better than me at creating um, new words um, and just figured this feels like a good impulse, especially since I'm trying to kind of imagine a different thing um, in doing this. And um, I also, I think I needed to offset um the other anxiety that i was writing too much in what looked like a um conventional poem space that makes sense um i needed to still be kind of rebellious even even though like what looked conventional is simply in me being sarcastic um i still like needed to be a subversive um in like little ways so if i like say alighieri that's again like me like rolling my neck and right. <laughs> being a problem child <laughs> love it my first introduction to your work justin was actually through nonfiction from reading your essay killing like they do in the movies which was in Best American Essays back in like 2016. I think so, um, yeah, thank you for reading. Yeah, oh my gosh, it's phenomenal. And, and in it, you, you write about horror in terms of the very real horror of violences against Black people in America, and also in terms of violence in slasher films. Um, and you mentioned in that essay um, how movies like Scream and Nightmare on Elm Street have provided you with a quote 
depiction of fantasized violence that you mm -hmm. often call on in your poems. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, you wrote this years ago. I by no means hold you to anything you said then. Um, because <laughs> I, <laughs> I would never want anyone to hold me to anything like that. But um, but I did want to ask by watching horror movies and writing, what are in some ways horror poems? What sort of tools do you feel like you are exercising or exorcising? Mm. That's a good question. Thank you. Um, I think one thing that's central, and this is for at least the last few, is atmosphere. I learned a lot about um, trying to craft the atmosphere, those poems from watching horror movies. Um, it may just be, you know, as far as a matter of perspective, like how a camera will um, kind of expand or contract um, the, the field of what you have to deal with, um, or how to write um, from the perspective of an eye or a we that is stalking in the way that a killer would stalk in a horror film. Um, and also like different tropes, I think of course come through um, the like harbingers that birds tend to be um, or um, even the way that I think it's funny to talk about this actually because you, you, I start to realize that um, there's there's a conversation happening between my um, representation of a representation um, um, of artifice that's that that I'm really that I'm really like I want to think about a lot more and I think I'm trying to do that in essays now um, if I can call them essays. Um, but yeah, it. I think too. Like, what was I? There are certain um, narrative pins that have to be like put into place in in films or traditionally in films that I think also happen in some of these poems. Um, there is a kind of. Um, an uncertainty at which you're like introduced to the like, mysterious speaker. Um, there's violence happening, but we don't exactly like know why. Maybe a motive gets introduced, um, and maybe that motive is like just entirely contrived. Um, and also, I think the perspective, um, writing from the perspective of a complicit party, the way that our camera puts you as audience in the space of being complicit in the murder of victims in horror films. Ooh, I never thought of it that way. Yeah. I could probably go on, but I think I need material for <laughs> my next yeah. work. <laughs> no, that was fascinating. Yeah, I look forward to if you end up sharing more writing on this topic, because you're right, there's just so much to unpack there. And I, I love how you're thinking about it. I'm trying. Um, were there other parts to that? Uh, 
Okay. No, I don't. I don't ask as many multi-part questions. <laughs> 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 right. I like them all. I like a diversity of <laughs> question structures. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those are, I guess, the ways. Um, other than the films being explicitly a like not about but like in conversation with particular horror films um the fact that the hitcher ever ended up in a in a poem that i wrote is strange to me but i just rolled with it <laughs> <laughs> moments like that would happen um well it says so much about how imagery works on us, I think, that it, mm -hmm. what we see burrows into our brains and is then there to call forth again in other forms. And I mean, movies being translated into poetry makes so much sense to me for that reason. I mean, I think, you know, what we see that that burrows in then comes out in, in all these different ways, no matter what we create. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is something that I am trying and hope that most people are trying to think more critically about just now, um, the ways that we receive um, like anti-Black violence um, online. Um, I'm just thinking about and writing about um, the most horrific images that I can recall from childhood were not from film images, were not from what are called horror films. They were from films in which there were like racial upheaval. Um, and I'm thinking explicitly about films like Strange Days in which Angela Bassett gets beaten by riot police or um, A Time to Kill in which Samuel L. Jackson's daughter gets raped by two rednecks. Um, these are things that like really stuck with me, disturbed me for years um and they are not fantasy violence um and so i'm intrigued by horror as a genre um its inability to create something as disturbing as anti-black violence um unless it just recycles anti-black violence imagery um and I'm also trying to unpack the, the different complications um, of receiving violent imagery and then having it obviously recycled in my dreams. Um, recently, I've had dreams in which um, not only does horror, like fantasy horror violence happen because I watch so many horror films and I recognize it as that, but it's starting to get mixed in with these, um, you know, repeated um, presentations of anti-black violence. Um, so in the same dream, I can have a film, uh, a horror film essentially playing out in anti-black violence, like a, a, the shooting of a black man will happen in the dream. Um, so I am trying to understand um, what is like the limit of dream space um, then to like not make something else of that. Um, and also, is this just the, the, the point at which I can, like, I have received so much that it cannot um, excuse itself from, from my dream space, which is where, like, I expect kind of new things um, to happen. Um, 
so that's that's kind of what I'm trying to think through now, and I guess it's just a continuation of everything that I've been working on. I have thoughts about that. I feel like <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just the idea, like what you're saying, like then the dream space itself becomes the horror. Like you can't escape the horror in itself, and the dream the dream space itself becomes its own horror that you can't avoid. Like you have you have to go to sleep, and like that in itself. You know, it's just fine. It, it's just a lot. It's a lot. I have a lot of, I have a lot, I have a lot of thoughts <laughs> about this specifically. Now that you, yeah. <laughs> and I think I really love. I really am interested, and suddenly curious about like, I mean, like the nature of subjectivity in horror films, right? I think like the nature of it is that like, you know, I think the Blair Witch Project being sort of like the perfect example is like the idea is that like we're all in a horror film, like as the viewer you are potentially subject to that horror, right? It's sort of like what I feel is the gag of most horror films. Um, and then maybe Justin, I guess like what it sounds like is like, it's just like living a life is also in some ways a horror film and like it's the inability to escape it in a dream and like sort of, I guess, negotiating the subjectivity between the different contexts um, and what we expect of like ourselves and like how then I guess we demand that of readers and each other. I don't know. I think so. So one thing I, I snag on in in this is both subjectivities happen in horror conventionally, specifically in slasher films. You will mm. get the perspective, um, or you can watch from the perspective of a victim. Um, recognizing the killer struggling with the killer um, but for most of the film you're operating from the perspective of the killer um, mm. in the stalking mm. um, you watch knowing that something bad and and following that something bad is going to happen to the people you're looking at um, and so in that way desiring it because you're you're staying with the film um, and what interests me most about that mixed subjectivity arriving in dream space is the ways that it can prompt me to acknowledge too that I operate at least in this double all the time. Um, I'm always gonna be somehow a perpetrator of some violence and also the victim of it um by circumstance or by choice mm. um and less attached to that because i feel like that's an argument that like i am like hmm, entertaining making but not prepared to make like fully um i'm more interested in being able to inhabit like at least multiple possibilities along that line um so giving up this position in which um, I am either victimized subject or mm. perpetrating subject. Um, mm. Acknowledging that at, at foundation, I can at least be both at the same time and probably am. And then trying to work from there. Um, but I feel like the singular, the singularity, the singular thinking um, is a problem that we are really struggling with. Everybody like wants to be good. 
that's how you get people being like, you know, I don't you know, I'm like, I'm not a racist. I am a racist, but I'm telling you I'm not because I don't want I don't want at least to like be thought of as one. Um so yeah, I don't know. It's 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 <laughs> it's a trip, um, you know, having these dreams or like receiving these particular like um, cultural products and the signals um, and trying to figure them all out. But at the same time, I think it's work that feels worthwhile right now um, for me to somehow grow into. Um. So okay, I guess moving on a little bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, so what's great about this new book, I think for me, is the difference in mood and atmosphere um, from your first book, Indecency. It's a difference being a feeling of uh, what I'm calling gothicness. Um, and even have a poem called Gothic in this new book. And I don't know, you know much about goths or gothic or gothic history, but Miss Google lets us know some things. So Miss <laughs> Google says, relating to the goths or their extinct East Germanic language, which provides the earliest manuscript of evidence of Germanic language. Cool. And then it goes to the language of gods, the Gothic style of architecture, yada, 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 yada. Doesn't give much there, but listeners now know what I'm talking about. Ish. Cool. And so some poets that I think of that are quote-unquote Gothic are Ricky Lorentz, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, Bridget Piggy Ketley. And so when I say Gothicness, I'm really thinking more so about a, a structured darkness or structured violence, but that's the book and these posts that I've mentioned do or are and can do in their work. So I want you to talk about more so about this structured violence and counter violence that's throughout the book and how each speaker, animus that Gaddy suggested, uh, beckons to this history of such violence. Okay, that's a lot. All right, we're gonna get through this one. Thank you. <laughs> um, as far as the poem that is ex explicitly titled Gothic, um, I mean, that started by referring to the architecture which I was studying in the poem. Um, this was, I think, from a trip to uh, Barcelona and getting introduced to the different styles of um, architecture that um, the, the city was built in um, and kind of like built on top of itself um, um, to still be. Um, but of course it's a play on words um, or at least play on like the senses and associations of the word um, because we also then think about gothic fiction um, and in that case specifically um, about um, gothic horror, about um, narratives that do tend to do turn out to be like horror tragedies, um, but also have some kind of romantic um, impulse. And I mean, mo I think maybe like romantic in the intellectual sense. It's like usually like people talking to each other um, in very smart ways so that in such such smart ways that they seem to be like trying to seduce each other. Um, like I think a lot about the way that Dracula talked to Jonathan Harker. Um, and with 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 gothic itself the the play too is on this idea of perspective that um i can be giving you this information and then at the end turn out to be the monster the way that happened in you know mary shelley um where 
we think that uh, Victor Frankenstein created a monster. It turns out he's a monster himself. Um, so, and then that play between like, you know, am I monster or am I in opposition to monsters or like, is it both, um, you know, goes on throughout the book. Um, and I think that atmosphere of Gothic horror then also keeps coming back to kind of replay itself until, you know, it's quite literally night all the time in the book. Um, and there are hopefully forces moving in the the dark of the book that even I can't explain um, or explicate um, or name that I think is also a part of the, you know, among the tropes of Gothic horror. I, as far as the other senses, I don't know much about the Goths themselves, um, unless they are the Goths who at one time shopped at Hot Topic, maybe. <laughs> um, but even those are the fake Goths, depending on who you talk to, you know? Um, I, right now, I'm listening to a lot of Dark Wave, and I'm like, oh, these are the Goths y'all are talking about, you know? I'm not a Goth. <laughs> I love how before you said that, you like looked to the side, like there was going to be like a gothic person there, like. <laughs> I have to think of it. <laughs> I get dragged for being a poser. <laughs> Maybe because I'm a southerner, I can't think about the word gothic without thinking southern gothic. And I don't mm -hmm. know to what extent you identify as like a Southern poet. Aren't, aren't you originally from the South somewhere? South Carolina. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, uh, to, to Luther's point, I can't think about Southern Gothic without thinking about that poem by Ricky. Mm -hmm. But um, I think in that sense, my book is, maybe less concerned with the particular horrors of a specifically southern landscape um what the malevolent volume i think is tricky it's tricky to me <laughs> in that it begins, I think, by acknowledging and probably emphatically declaring that we're going to be dealing in fantasy and myth. And then I think what it does it's, is it turns out convincing me that we're actually in a recognizable space um, and forgetting that, again, this is like all artifice, you know. Um, and maybe that's just my experience of it, but like I uh, don't think of it as a southern a collection of southern poems. Though I think of myself like absolutely as a southern poet, um, or just a southern person. Be thinking about like the South, which is so many things. Um, but yeah, I, I, the, the, the Carolina me cannot be removed. And it's part of the way that I talk shit. Um, so 
that does come up at least in my poetics. Uh, I just don't recognize these poems as, um, well, overall, I think poems like um, If We Must Be the Dead certainly carry um, images of the, that, that, that particular Southern harp uh, and the undying. I think those two together um, do kind of dip into a Southern Gothic space. Um, but overall, the book is like not necessarily concerned with that landscape. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, but not really. Um, I want to congratulate you on your National Book Award for your first book, Indecency. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the night that you won, I was actually walking out of a class when I uh, like watched your acceptance speech. And I've been thinking about your acceptance speech since then. Um, and particularly um, the lines, you know, what to make of this epithet National Book Award winner in poetry. Um, and then later, um, you know, your acknowledgement of the impossibility of a national book in the United mm -hmm. States. Um, and as I was reading the malevolent volume, it struck me that like, this is a kind of answer to that. Um, even the title, the malevolent volume, um, when sort of positioned against the national book, um, it feels really uh, <laughs> forceful. Um, and since, you know, we've been talking a little bit about you talking shit, um, I'm wondering if maybe like that wasn't a part of the project, um, you know, maybe talking that shit, but also like reimagining and re-envisioning like what it means to make a national book um, and like what the malevolent volume as a counter to that might mean. Thank you for this. Uh, the yeah, I think in the you know I was acknowledging I think what most of us know in that um, awards are cool. Um, they are not representative, um, and that's just point blank. They can't be. Um, bias goes into so many parts of it. Um, and I mean, structural biases, um, people who don't write all the time in English, um, people who, because of their citizenship status, their books can't get into national book awards um, contests, um, different things like that. So it then becomes like clearly impossible that one book should stand out as the national book because you haven't sourced all of the possible books. Um, at least, I mean, like we're still saying like <laughs> that one book like for the year, come on. Uh, but I think, you know, it's a catchy title. Um, as far as like the malevolent volumes relationship to that, um, maybe I at some point hoped for the malevolent volume to like just not be capable of <laughs> becoming anything that something someone would think of as like nationally representative. Mm. Um, mm. But I'm sure that there could be some, somebody could figure out a way <laughs> to argue that it is. Uh, that's not really like an argument for me. Um, it, it, it's a book that like wants to be, I think, 
just I guess like troublesome, not necessarily uh, definitely not revolutionary. Like it's not something I'm interested in, um, or it's not something that I feel capable of, um, at least. Um, more so it wants to i think buck up against being hmm. <laughs> applauded for trauma hmm. um I think that is maybe where some of the mood that feels like humor also comes in um, because I think a lot of these speakers are working inside of subjectivities that are fully invested in malice um, and in being unforgivable, although it depends on who you talk to. Black revenge is not unforgivable to a lot of people. <laughs> um, do you so feel, yeah, they're good. Do you feel that indecency was a little applauded for trauma? Is that sort of what you're responding to? Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say that sometimes people actually like use the term black trauma in a, in in relation to indecency while they mm -hmm. are applauding it. Um, and I understand that um, there are a large faction, there's a large faction of people um, who have an appetite for that, probably more than people who don't have an appetite for it. And so I had felt like, too, since I wrote this book that was in itself a lot of the times um, harmful and difficult to write, um, and still now is difficult to read, um, I did not want to write another book that would cater to that same appetite. Now, whether or not I succeeded in avoiding that, I'm not sure. You were going to ask another question. Mm, I think you might have answered it, but I guess I was just curious, <laughs> sort of given that, um, just like how your relationship to indecency has changed. Um, and, and, and again, you've sort of answered it too, just like how writing that book and and going experiencing the reception that it got um how that allowed you like what doors it opened for this book and any subsequent work mm -hmm. um yeah it definitely changed um but it had my relationship to that book had been changing by the time it came out because it was two years after i'd finished the book um and i was already writing the malevolent volume when it came out um, and I think I had also been uh, at, at least at the beginning of acknowledging, you know, what we're talking about, that there is an appetite for um, seeing Black people traumatized. 
And I think that by the time the awards started coming in, I was deeply, I think, mystified at first, or a little baffled, you know, um, by by some of that celebration. And then there came a point after months um, in which I think Indecency started to feel less like my book. I'm still trying to understand that. Hmm. Um, but, you know, it's not, it's so inappropriate of me to complain about my relationship to that book which is now so celebrated <laughs> and has gotten me all of this attention, um, like deeply inappropriate. Um, however, period. <laughs> I feel ways about that book. Um, and I, I think, you know, because the malevolent volume is still relatively new to me I don't want to feel that way about it um maybe I won't because maybe you know um I don't know the, the the journey that it has will be like completely different um but yeah you said something about what how that experiencing experience with indecency was maybe paving a way for yeah, just like what doors it might have opened or how it made, in what ways it made like this second book possible. Um, yeah. In what ways it made the second book possible. The, the relation that I think returns the most, the, the one I keep coming back to is um, people are really intrigued. <laughs> um, or by things in a decency that are to me pretty simple, like um, concrete poetry, or by um, just the way that it like looks different. Um, mm. I think just really turns people on, <laughs> um, and. I think the way that that influenced um, at least some of the malevolent volume, because I think I like was already into the pro project of writing this book um, when Indecency dropped, um, was wanting to acknowledge um, at least subtly that what we consider um, political poetry, if you even have like the mouth to say like political poetry, um, does not have to like look subversive on the page. Um, mm. And my point for this was that I can sing too, um, mm. that I too make music. Mm. Um, and so even though I'm pissed off all the time, it's probably I'm pissed off because I can't make more music. So let me do both in this book. Um, 
and I I think that, if anything, has been the driving force that you know generated most of these poems. If We Must Be the Dead, after Claude McKay, featuring Sterling A. Brown. You misunderstand. Some nights you sleep as though your chest is locked and keyless. We haunt insofar as blackout haunts the lamp bulb's final flare. Without us, you abide the gladsome land. Have you numbered our ranks behind their grinding ballistic freedoms? Let us reanimate the panorama's trimmed gore. Show us where it hurts, how wide the prison sprawls, how brave the gravestones stapled in the liquid hills, and for the innumerable unmarked silos of ice. Where their tree lines sag low under sundown, and some thousand unlit back roads come to Congress. And what blows in curbside weeds is not insect embroidery. Deal with us. We are the dead. We set the tone death. We climb their sleep like bellflower horns and blow. Thank you, Justin, for being the genius, genius, genius you are, for talking with us about, you know, horror movies, horror poems, and just being a wonderfully, awfully good person and capital P poet. Justin is the season finale of season two. So, you know, I'm sure you're going to enjoy it and love it and love us, of course. <laughs> always stay tuned possibly for some bonus episodes no promises i just said stay tuned and you know rate us five stars on wherever you listen us to give us five stars give us a review tell us you love 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 our voices and that we're cute and that we're cute I mean, you can't see us but i mean obviously you know it. we're cute yeah our minds are cute our minds yeah. are <laughs> Sexy. Also, Thank you. follow Thank us you. on Twitter at <laughs> PersonalonPod and send along one, your questions, two, your favorite type of water. Hmm. Think about that. Three, <laughs> your favorite horror movie. And send that to the PersonalonPod at gmail.com. Adios, amigos. Chiwali wali uchi bang bang While the world is falling, we can maintain Folding origami, making crane cranes Got a thousand wishes on my brain brain I put salt in the water when I'm cooking up the pasta Trying to keep me quiet, but you know it's gonna cost ya Cause I cook them proper, redder than a lobster Gourmet bait, but my mama was a monster you wanna- this gonna show you these hands 
gonna take on these streets Gonna show you who's man's Cause my crew mob steady Feddy and spaghetti Feddy and spaghetti Feddy in the...